Cool. Okay, and we're off. Uh, so I'd like to welcome Robin Bond to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining me, Robin. How are you? I'm very well, Johnny. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Excellent stuff. So you are an agency growth specialist and the founder of Codefinery. Um, we've got some great topics to talk about today, specifically delving into the marketing industry, an industry you know extremely well, um, and looking at the opportunities in that area for outcome-based work delivery, obviously a subject that's very close to my heart. Um, before we get into that, a bit of a question for you. How did you get from cell biology to management consultancy? <laughs> That's a good question. I often ask myself the very same thing. Um, in all honesty, I loved biology. and um, But then when you go to university and you learn more and more and more about less and less and less. So I got quite bored by it quite quickly. So I think probably like a lot of people, you do a degree and you're lucky to do it and that's all good. And then you fall out of it, not knowing what to do. So um, I found myself in a recruitment uh, agency office and they said, well, you know, you can count to 10 and you can string a sentence together and you haven't got any obvious facial disfigurement. So you might want to consider a career in sales. I thought, okay, yeah, whatever, I'll give it a whirl. So I ended up um, selling very big computers to um, universities for about three years. So did the whole sort of, you know, Glengarry, Glen Ross, always be closing, leaderboard on the wall, sharp elbowed competitive sales floor type sales role for a few years. Um, and then I found myself in, in agencies after that. So they're run very differently from a sales and growth perspective, but I've never forgotten that perspective on, um, uh, you know, selling, that grounding in selling, which is interesting. And I'm sure we'll touch on it later, but more often than not, selling is almost a bit of a dirty word within agencies. So, um, so yeah, I did my time in agencies, worked in big ones, small ones, new ones, old ones, global ones, startup-y ones. And um, uh, around the sort of the middle of the last decade decided that, having done all sorts of commercial and growth and marketing and new business and, and some marketing and selling type roles within agencies, um, you end up being asked to do the same thing again and again and again. And your ability to really affect change from within that kind of central growth role is, is pretty limited. You can tend to change quite a lot if you're given a transformational agenda. You can tend to change quite a lot quite quickly within maybe year one, and then it just gets harder because you, know, you become part of the problem effectively. So the idea of being able to affect change within an agency business model, it became obvious that you could do more externally than you could internally. And um, yeah, and that's how I found myself, I think in 2016, sort of launched Codefinery formally. And um, yeah, as a, as a management consultant now, um, so many of the barriers against changing agencies, uh, they go away because you only ever get brought in when people are ready to really change things because you know, the meter's running, if you like, not that I sell time, but, um, but because they're paying for you to be there, you know, they will be ready to change. They will line up people behind change and as a sort of facilitator and a catalyst for, you know, positive outcomes in the business, then um, it's, uh, it's a much more productive way of trying to, you know, make better agency businesses. So, um, so yeah, very long answer to a very simple question, but um, <laughs> I think the kind of, you know, the kind of, I don't know, the empiricist in me as a scientist, I still find useful, um, you know, the kind of the rigor and the structure that I guess being a, a scientist in inverted commas um, gives you is, uh, is a, uh, relevant, but yeah, certainly from agencies to here, it's about getting more done in less time. And I think that's the bit I probably enjoy most about being, um, you know, a consultant to agencies now. Yeah, and I agree with you when you're talking about the analytical side of, um, you know, 
coming from a scientific background, I mean, you know, in terms of putting in efficiencies to the agencies you're working with, I'm sure there's quite a lot of analysis of process and data and structure that, that will go into that to make inferences. But, you know, I myself came from a, a, a similar scientific background at university, came out of it. I actually remember reading an article in The Economist, and it was basically rating degree subjects by the percentage increase in the uh, um, expected earnings uh, against the average wage. Uh, in the UK, and uh, you know, my friends who were studying economics or whatever, were all like, "Oh yeah, you know, sixty percent increase or whatever." And I remember my uh, my degree gave me something like a, th a minus three percent uh, against the average, and I was like, "Okay, maybe should have researched that a bit beforehand." But <laughs> you know, the, I, I I certainly found myself the the value of that kind of evidence based methodology and the kind of rigor and the research and the um, analysis of data. Um, it certainly has its uses, and and ultimately, when you've when you've studied it you've done that structured learning you can take that into other areas and i think having done some work with people like boston consulting group and other management consultancies um in previous roles that's the type of methodology that i see coming through in some of the management consultancy practices um so i can see why that would be very transferable but then you've got all of the experience that you've had in the in the, in the marketing world um to add to that um it's an interesting thing because um you know, the, the idea of a sort of classic empiricist where you're looking at data and making hypotheses and then trying to disprove them as a, as a scientist would, that's pretty alien to most agencies. And in fairness, sort of what passes for rigor uh, in most agencies is a pretty low bar. Um, there's a very good consultant I know called Lucy Good, who um, uh, I think she has an MSc in organizational design, but um, she's really looked at the absence of you know, evidence-based decision-making within agencies. And in some respects, it stands to reason because, um, you know, the old cliche about you only need a kitchen table and a computer to start an agency is pretty true. Certainly been proven even more true over the last, <laughs> last sort of year and a bit as that's kind of how business has been done. But um, you don't really need that level of rigor, particularly in more creatively driven agency businesses. Right. Um, but I do think that um, a sort of analytical, holistic view is becoming more and more important to the leaders of agencies. I think a lot of the challenges that those people running those kinds of companies have, uh, um, I suppose, thought about in the past, they've been quite siloed, which is kind of unforgivable in such small businesses. But there's a sense of, you know, there's a new business challenge over there. There's a, an HR challenge over there or an operational one or a profit one or a finance one. And I think increasingly it's the, the sort of red threads that bring those different disciplines together within the agency business. That is where there is latent value. There's rarely a sort of aha moment. It's like, oh shit, a marketing plan. Who knew that you had to do that? Um, but actually the connectivity and um, the, the, the sort of uh, the downstream impact of what might go on, for example, in your DNI strategy and the impact that might have on an aspect of your new business strategy, um, connecting those things together, I think is where a lot of value can be created very quickly within agencies, which I guess is kind of scientific, even if it's not quite so uh, classically empirical. And do you think that the reason or part of the reason that agencies are having to be a bit more methodical and scientific is because clients are trying to be more analytical and scientific about what they're getting from agencies? Yeah, it's a good question. I suppose it, it's hard to answer with fresh eyes because I, I obviously bring my own personal worldview into that. So um, I think to but the client perspective, I think you're right, is the driver. I think the, the reality is that so many of the um, 
the complexities that clients have increasingly been sort of faced with over the last 20 years. And we could talk endlessly about how marketing as one aspect of that has changed, even before you get into, you know, the role of the chief procurement officer or the chief technology officer and all the other kind of mega trends, if you like, that we've seen as sort of business has become more digitized over the last, whatever, 20 odd years, 30 years. Um, that remit and that, um, I suppose, perspective on the agency marketplace has shifted dramatically from the client side. And I think we've seen it shift again dramatically over the last, whatever it is, 15 months. So I think whatever you as an agency leader, whatever your experience of that change in how clients uh, in their needs, the, the breadth of their requirements, the urgency of their requirements, their uh, time and willingness to engage with the agency marketplace, the things they care about, what they're prepared to pay, what they consider value, whether they will be prepared to pay a premium. There's loads of stuff in that. And I think that, as I say, particularly in the last sort of, you know, the sort of the pandemic uh, uh, times, if you like, that's accelerated a realization um, that agencies need to think a lot more holistically about the way they cater for the market. The, there's been a, I think, a, a much more, um, uh, I suppose, action-based understanding of standout, for example, given, uh, sorry, there's a, a helicopter flying past my house, which I don't know if you can hear, but it's deafening for me. Okay, only, just, just, only just picking it up. Right, I'll just let it pass. That's loud. Um, no, you're fine this end. Okay, good. Sorry, I probably should have carried on. No, it's all right. Um, so yeah, that change in perspective and what clients are asking for from agencies, I think is becoming um, something that agency leaders are much more willing to act upon. So things like standout is a great case in point. So many of the traditional agency so-called propositions, they're really just strap lines. They don't really confer any great differentiation. They kind of talk a little bit about how the, how the agency operates, um, but it doesn't really speak much to a discrete target audience or a particularly ownable outcome that that agency can bring to the party. So just on that one topic of, um, you know, how do we stand out and how is that standout kind of presented to the market? How do we substantiate it? Why should clients care? I think that's being thought about in a much more holistic way now in as much as, yeah, we could have just had a strap line and a new website, but actually now what we recognize we should be thinking about is, you know, the strategy of the business and the proposition being one and the same. How does this impact the leadership? How does this impact us operationally, structures, process, people strategy, as well as the more obvious things like marketing and how we sell differently, how we price differently. So the connectivity between all those things, I think, is very much driven by how the client demand is changing, but particularly now how I think agencies are listening more to clients than they ever have done. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, and when organisations or an, uh, you know, an industry like that has to make changes, it all pushes towards how mature is the organisation, how well structured is the organisation, you know, how well, as you say, linked up is their overall strategy because they've got to start moving pieces around. They've got to start changing things and reinforcing messages or changing the message, getting a better message out there. Um, and it also comes down to the delivery. And I mean, with, with the with the COVID, with the, with the whole COVID situation, would you say that as a general rule that has negatively impacted the kind of marketing agency world? I, I suppose by nature, I'm an optimist. And, um, you know, putting aside 
obviously the sort of horrible human cost of the whole thing. I think from an agency perspective, I like to think um, that there will be a lot of very positive legacies to come out of, uh, of COVID. Um, and equally, I, I know plenty of agencies that have been horribly badly affected, not least you know, necessarily because they've been in a, you know, they're badly run agencies and weren't, you know, didn't have cash in the bank or whatever, but they were just in a, in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, very exposed to, you know, events and experiential yeah. or, you know, lots of business coming out of Italy when Italy closed down very quickly, all that kind of stuff. So just being in the wrong place when the music stopped is, is a tough situation. But I think interestingly, um, one of the, um, I suppose, the things I certainly didn't see coming, if you like, with respect to how the, the pandemic has played out is that I think there are a lot of agencies that have been quite profoundly affected by it, you know, negatively. They've seen a lot of, you know, 10 years worth of growth just sort of disappear overnight and, you know, their turnover sort of be down into single figure percentage points about what it was, you know, the year before. And you would just assume that that would be heartbreaking and would be, um, you know, just a, such a kick in the teeth, all the blood, sweat and tears that goes into building an agency business up like that, particularly an independent, um, you know, it's kind of your baby in that situation. But actually a lot of those founders that I spoke to were actually a little bit relieved. It was almost like there was a, a sort of a no fault reset that had been imposed upon them. And, um, and I think that's prompted, I suppose, a little bit more of a well-rounded view on what growth could be for the agency marketplace. And I think that kind of directly challenges the old view, which was that kind of growth for growth's sake was ideal and that success was about getting bigger. And um, it often meant that that was a kind of proxy for any kind of strategy. So you'd ask, ask a chief exec, well, what, what is your strategy? Oh, we want to double in size. You know, we want to, right. we want to be an X number of markets. We want to be, um, you know, or maybe we want to maintain 20% profit margin or whatever it's going to be. And, Generally, these aren't strategies, they're just metrics or aspirations. And a lot of them are really just ego representations of ego rather than anything kind of more kind of structured than that. So I think the pandemic has encouraged people to think a little bit more, uh, a little bit more deeply, I, got, I suppose, about what success looks like for them. Do you know, do you really want to build a big agency? Um, you know, if you had a big agency, you know, last year and now you don't, is life worse for you or is it not? And of course, letting people go and you know, seeing sort of the, the, the kind of disruption that causes in people's families and mortgage payments and everything else is horrible. But in terms of the bigger picture, um, I think it's the road well-traveled. You know, you start an agency if you're an indie um, and, you know, you want to get some traction and stability. So you win a client and it's brilliant and then you win another one and that's amazing. And all of a sudden you've got five people and, and that's brilliant. And then, you know, you've got too much of your revenue coming from one client. It's like, you know, shit, we better win another big client. And then you do, and that's amazing. And then of course, you're just on a path then where you kind of consistently have to keep winning because you've got ever more, you've got more mouths to feed and bigger mouths to feed. And all of a sudden you've built a bit of a beast and um, you've got to keep sprinting just to stand still. And, you know, there is um, a huge sense of responsibility. You know, you're getting dragged from pillar to post. You're working in the business, not on the business. You know, you're attached to too many kind of client relationships. You don't have time to think. And that I think is a lot of where that relief came from. So um, to not have to do that anymore and to have the opportunity to build back the agency that you always wanted rather than to just sort of be lumbered with the agencies, you know, that appears successful that you've kind of found yourself with sort of victim of your own success. 
um, I think potentially can be a really positive legacy because in a world where, you know, you can start to build a meaningful strategy towards a much more carefully described outcome, which isn't just about size and scale, but Matt perhaps speaks much more to, you know, divert, you know, diversity in the workplace or, you know, a pleasant and inclusive place to be or, you know, uh, a culture around your employees or an ability to really invest in them rather than just resort to cliche about people are our most important asset. All that stuff, which no one kind of, those cliches, I don't think people adhere to them because they're not good people. They're just kind of the, the old rules of the game. And I think the more opportunity you have to challenge that and build a good business and for it to be a great place to be and for it to be fulfilling without you needing to be massive, I think, you know, nothing wrong with being massive and that might be the right choice for you, but at least it opens up a set of options for you. Um, so again, yeah, very long answer, but I think the reality is that there could and should be a lot of very positive legacies to COVID, both societally and from an agency business model point of view. I also think people are smart and people are good and they will make there be good legacies out of COVID. Yeah, some really interesting points there. I think when you're talking about kind of agencies almost running down the tracks it's all moving too fast um for the people that kind of built the agency it's very hard to focus on quality when there's that much quantity going on um and as you say it kind of it can run away with itself and i know exactly what you mean um so i guess when people have are in as you put it a no fault reset then they are in a situation where they can maybe say well actually we kind of got away from our values um, and that was something that was really important to us. And actually, we can get back to we don't have to be 300 people. We could be 50 people or 10 people. And it could be fantastic because we're doing our values are we're doing great work and we've got a really great culture and we've got you know brilliant people. And we genuinely do care about our people and you know embrace um, diversity in all its forms, you know, and, and also the kind of cognitive diversity of having different people from different backgrounds coming up with great ideas and different ways of looking at things because people have got different experiences in their different lives. Um, so I just wanted to kind of link that into a point that, that I wanted to, to get your thoughts on, which was around accountability. So this is something that the organizations were doing anyway, was just trying to get more accountable, more data-driven, more metrics, more um, visibility on everything they're spending. Certainly this is a, a key area for procurement, obviously when they're, when they're looking at their marketing services spend um but a couple of couple of points on that firstly you've got the procurement angle on it um and to be honest we see this not just in marketing services but across all services procurement is that covid has had a significant impact where for companies it's not good enough to beat a budget you need to know what you're getting for your money and sometimes spend like marketing services can be a little bit more esoteric harder to pin down harder to say what you actually got from it and all this sort of thing um, so there's that side of the accountability, which I'll be interested to get your opinion on. And then the second part of it is around things like values, diversity and inclusion, um, sustainability and stuff like that, which are becoming more and more important for end organisations in their supply chain as well. So how do you see those two factors? How have they been affected in terms of pure accountability being driven by the client? Wow. Um that's giant a giant question. You'll probably have a one-line answer. Now. I was going to say, I better have a one-line answer. Otherwise it's going to be a really long podcast. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, I mean, I've got so many thoughts about this. I um, Procurement, I think, is a, uh, a discipline that is foolishly maligned by agencies. And I've thought that for a long time. 
and I, I in fact I sent a letter to Campaign Magazine. I think at least 15 years ago, probably closer to 20 years ago, which kind of called them out on this. And I don't think we've got much better, if I'm honest, which is ludicrous. But the opportunity to engage with procurement and to understand from a, a kind of commercial perspective what the drivers are uh, of growth within their business. I think it's a massive opportunity for agencies, leaders, marketing, new business people to really connect with um, the commercial agenda within their, their target client organizations. So um, I think particularly now, if there's an increasing kind of um, focus about not just what we're spending, but what we get for the money, um, obviously that leads to a conversation about value. And um, I think that, you know, there is for many, many years, there's always been this conversation within the agency community. Magic and Logic, you might remember, was an initiative from, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. Um, the sort of client and agency community trying to reconcile that there needed to be a, a sort of rigor and an accountability and a kind of commercial logic that sat underneath the kind of transformative, lateral thinking, creative brilliance of the magic. Yeah. And um, I think it's it was a, a sort of lovely concept, but I don't really personally view that it was something that was ever really, I suppose, um, successfully reconciled because the two are kind of fundamentally different things kind of cut forward to now i think we're in a really interesting time when actually if you are an agency person who's got their eyes open there's never been more encouragement not least from the client community but also from agency bodies as well um the ipa being chief among them um and huge credit to um you know the leaders there mark nor and the commercial groups um within that organization to really get the conversation about value and pricing out onto the table um also huge credit to client side bodies like the wfa i think um if you've seen project spring which is an initiative out there global sourcing group where it is the procurement community talking explicitly about the stuff you've talked about you know they're in the, the sort of evolving softer criteria that procurement people are increasingly looking for from their partners and suppliers, things like uh, diversity, things like sustainability. So the agency's credentials um, here are increasingly part of the conversation with, um, you know, with the people that are going to spend the money. So I think that's a really positive kind of environment for us to start to talk about accountability and value. Um, so the accountability thing I think is really interesting. Um, we, and I think this is probably something that uh, is not peculiar to the UK, but it's certainly um, something which we are absolutely uh, <laughs> terrible for. Um, there's a sort of peculiar sort of guilt-ridden work ethic that we have. And I know that um, uh, Bruce Daisley, um, who uh, used to be senior at Twitter and has a, um, a podcast and a book called Eat, uh, Eat uh, what's it called eat work repeat or something like that forgive me bruce um but it's uh, it's fascinating he talks a lot about the nature of work and the workplace um and he has a view which i'm going to mangle now sorry bruce again um about us all having this sort of um internal victorian mill owner this little voice in our heads telling us that we're kind of um that we're not working hard enough and i think that is a sort of an awful guilt to take around with you, given that we all work bloody hard, thanks very much. But it does lead into this horrible culture of presenteeism, which I think a lot of agencies are trying hard to stamp out. So a lot of um, 
you know, we've all been in offices where people would look at their watch when you dare to leave at 7.30 because wouldn't it be nice if you could kiss your kids goodnight before they go to bed? So seven o'clock, you know, part-timer and all that kind of horse shit. We don't need that anymore. And I think agencies are recognising that we don't need that anymore. But what the pandemic has done has proved that we can all be perfectly productive. We don't have the man or the woman like peering over our shoulder, making sure that we get stuff done. So when we say we're working from home, we don't need to do the, you know, the scare quotes now in the air to show that we're, oh, yeah, working from home, are you? <laughs> yeah, of course you are. We don't need to do that anymore. And that's a lovely, um, uh, I suppose, hammer to that presenteeism bullshit where you're just there to be seen to be there. It's also a great bit of positive self-talk to say to yourself that, you know what, I got up at seven o'clock this morning. I was at my desk at quarter past and... Um, you know what, it's half past 11, I'm going to have a cup of tea and a shower. <laughs> Thanks very much, because I've done, I've done some good work. Um, and it's okay, you know, you don't have to be at it for 14 hours a day. So I think that's a very good environment to um, recognise that it's not how long it took or where you did it, it's what you produced. So I think we're in a position to have a much more grown-up conversation about accountability, which I suppose uh, leads into the conversation about um, agency pricing, what constitutes value and, um, you know, ultimately evolving a, away from some of the practices within agencies that are also supportive of a long hours kind of commoditized, you know, working culture, such as selling time and materials, which are, um, you know, people are poorly utilized and those monies are, are kind of poorly recouped as so endemic over-servicing, throwing resource at a problem and all of those unsustainable business practices that, you know, the agency business has been carrying for, you know, well, since forever, but certainly been struggling to afford for the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah, so totally agree with you. Uh, the, the pandemic has absolutely shone a light on the fact that it's, it's not about where you do it, or when you do it, it's about what you do and that it's done to a good standard and, and uh, in the time that needs to be done. So it's all about outputs, outcomes, productivity, however you want to kind of um, phrase that the in a in a in an environment where you can get away with the whole kind of presenteeism time and materials bums on seats people just being there and you know being in an office and think sit thinking to yourself well there are lots of people here and they all appear to be doing something um therefore it must be all great that uh, for me it ties into this overarching problem which links back to what you do really which is about strategy because I think organisations are having to having to overcome these hurdles now, partly because of COVID. And there's just been this focus on, well, what are you actually doing? Procurement teams saying, well, what am I actually getting for my money? And wanting to really get visibility on that. We see that with people using our technology all the time, where they, they know what they spend, but they want to know what they got for it. Um, so there's a hurdle for companies because they've got to define what they're going to do. And the company that, that, that's, that's engaging them needs to define what they do. And, you know, clearly that should be part of the process anyway. But I think there can be some laziness when it's not really outcome driven. Whereas if, if a piece of a requirement is really outcome driven, there's, there might be some change along the way. But you're clearly saying, I'm going to pay you X to do Y. Everybody's clear about that. And then everybody can do it in the most efficient way. The company's happy. They, they've agreed to pay a certain amount. And they know what they're going to get for it their strategy needs to be lined up because they need to know what it is they want to do and how that fits into their overarching strategy. Very important they communicate that correctly. 
and therefore the marketing agency needs to have a clear they have a clear understanding of what's required about of them in a particular project and across all of their projects and programs and therefore they need a clear strategy as to how they're going to resource that how their organization is going to be structured and managed to deliver that so when you look at that from a kind of analytical scientific point of view it makes a hell of a lot of sense but there are there are definitely some hurdles for the agency world and clients to adapt to that what what do you think you talked a little bit about the perception of value and this kind of what i guess sounds to me like you know wholesale mismanagement of of time-based working what do you see as the major things that need to change in that where the big problems are where agencies are losing money and they're not delivering and clients aren't happy and agencies aren't happy where, where are the main pain points I mean, where do you start? I mean, um, if you accept that agency businesses are largely driven by people, you know, as opposed to proprietary IP or machinery or, you know, software or anything else, it is still inherently a people business. Arguably the biggest sort of symptom of the disconnect you've just described is the talent market. So part, I mean, even sidestepping an enormous, um, challenge around diversity of uh you know in all of its forms any study you'll pick up will show that the level of diversity in um mainstream agency land is is nowhere near it where it needs to be um but just the the challenge for for finding good people keeping good people you know making sure that um great talented creatively minded people um are not going and finding more attractive more glamorous jobs elsewhere that I think is probably the biggest, um, uh, most pressing challenge, I suppose. Um, and you can see that left, right and center that obviously so many agencies are having to run very lean now because there just isn't enough money in the system. There's a lot of very junior people with the greatest of respect who've got very big job titles. A lot of very senior people have been kind of let go. And, um, you know, it's, it's effectively a race to the bottom which needs to be stopped. And I think we are starting to see more change on that front consolidation of big agencies more um sort of explicit strategy and more specialization within um all agencies just a little bit more focus a little bit more strategic clarity that allows them to stop trying to be all things to all people so um i mean that, that barely scratches the surface of uh, of the challenges that you're talking about i think the question of value is another big one um in my opinion i think when you're looking at the biggest hurdles that um you know whether it's individuals or, you know, uh, agencies or businesses, any organization, the biggest hurdles that you have to change is, is often language. Right. So just simply um, everybody having a shared understanding of what it is that's the problem. Um, you know, <laughs> you just lean into so many cliches with this kind of, kind of broad conversation, but the idea that you've got to define the problem before you work on the answer, I think is, is, is critical. So when we're talking about value, we don't really talk about what value is. I think a lot of agencies defend their um, sort of presumed seat at the top table within business in very vague terms. A lot of the advertising agency community talk about creativity as if it's sort of value is kind of, you know, explicitly obvious. And I wouldn't think that the majority of, you know, FTSE 100 chief execs, you know, want to see an invoice with the word creativity on it. They want something far more commercial. So um, little bits of language like that and value is chief among them. So um, 
uh, and I'll give you a very specific example of this. I think when we talk in agencies about resolving some of the issues we've talked about, whether it's about you know hiring better people or keeping them there, it comes down to money. So why isn't there enough profitability within agencies? Well, there's lots of reasons for that. Um, so let's talk about pricing. Okay, great. That must be the solution to that. Let's find a way of charging more and kind of allowing that to inform you know, a more efficient operating model. Great. Okay, well, let's look at um, more entrepreneurial pricing. Let's look at um, value-based pricing. Okay, that's great. So if we can... Um, uh, get paid more if we achieve more, then that allows us to be entrepreneurial. That should be appealing to the client. And that, that's a, a, a sort of a logical path that is a, as old as the hills, but it's also really flawed. Um, and for that reason, the conversation about value gets kind of, you know, it, it stalls before it even gets off the grid because the idea of value being so connected to payment by results is a pretty flimsy um, connection. So when you say, uh, value-based pricing to a lot of agency people they hear and equate it to payment by results yeah. or performance related pay where there is skin in the game and if you you know you scope out a piece of work and if you overachieve against certain outcomes then you'll get paid more and if you don't quite achieve them then you get paid less which when it works is great and if you've got you know certainly a performance marketing agency where the metrics are clear and your attribution model can be you know, if not perfect, then at least workable, then it certainly makes sense. Um, but for everybody else, there's always a sort of sudden ringing of, uh, of hands saying, well, you know, we'd love to do payment by results or value-based pricing, but we can't because, you know, the client won't give us access to the data or, you know, they'll also quite rightly say, oh, the client's a bit nervous about not having certainty of budget. So if we overachieve, they've got to find more money from somewhere. So both on the client side, on the agency side, this sort of you know, this great hope for improving profitability in a really entrepreneurial, you know, win-win type way to help improve the business model. As I say, it doesn't even get off the starting blocks because it's sort of rooted in this assumption that it has to be based on sound attribution of variable pricing. And that's nonsense. <laughs> it's just, they're just different disciplines altogether. So, um, you know, selling on value and being in a position to, tailor what your um you know what's in a statement of work for a client um it's a completely separate discipline to um any kind of performance-based um aspect to it so um we've touched a little bit about selling outputs um which is certainly an option um as opposed to time and materials um you know you can talk about value in terms of um uh exactly the same metrics from a brand point of view or from a sales point of view all those kind of metrics that you might attach to payment by results they're perfectly sensible things to put a price against but they don't have to be variable prices it doesn't need to be skin in the game so there's a whole avenue here which is sort of opened up to agencies and to clients to consider about the commercial relationship between them if we suddenly disconnect the idea that value and um sort of skin in the game if you like are one and the same thing so that just one small example of how language massively gets in the way. So, so when you're when you're talking about selling value, and and in a previous conversation that we've had, you you've mentioned kind of frustrations around the idea of selling value, but the fact that people are pitching commodity. Do you do you do you mean specifically around things like performance marketing, or when you when you're talking about pitching commodity, what do you mean by that? 
I think that um, it's an interesting way you phrase that because sort of pitching commodity for me, pitching is um, is it's it's a symptom of the commoditization of agencies, right? Um, and I think a lot of agencies see it as the root cause of their commoditization. Okay. And um, so agency people will often whinge about the pitch process and people outside of the UK are absolutely staggered when they hear that we wouldn't dream in the UK of asking for a pitch fee from a client. And that amazes them. Um, now, whether you think that agencies will be paid for pitches or not, you know, that's a whole, a whole other, whole other conversation, but um, the idea that there needs to be some kind of selection process or beauty parade um, as a, a means of clients making investment decisions seems perfectly sensible to me. Um, I'm certainly not anti-pitch in any way, but the idea that it's, it's a sort of monolithic um, uh, 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 sort of engagement with the client where they hold all the cards is nonsense. You know, you've got a huge amount of uh, authority to input and influence that process as an agency. Um, but that is something you need to commit to. And um in very simple terms, if you're not a differentiated agency business, you're going to have much less influence in the way that clients are prepared to engage with you and buy from you. Um, I, I, have a, <laughs> I have a very um, oft used um, analogy between GPs and surgeons, which kind of emphasizes the point. Um, if you are, uh, you know, if you move into a new house and you need to sign up with a local surgery, you know, for your GP, then um, you probably don't think too much about it. You, you know, go and do a bit of a Google search, find out where the local surgeries are and you find the one that's closest to you and, or the one with a gap and you sign up and you don't worry about it. And then if you go and visit that GP, I don't know, three times in six months and the experience is pretty rubbish and the GP's a bit disinterested or they're a bit rude to your kids, then um, you think, this is rubbish. I'll just go to the GP that's 100 yards further from the house it's not a particularly high engagement decision because the expertise that that GP has is pretty broad. And, um, uh, and that's kind of the job, includes in the name, general practitioner. Now, if you contrast that to if you had a much more acute problem and you needed surgery on it, then you would probably engage the medical profession in a very different way. You would certainly search probably much harder. You'd think much more clearly about your criteria. You would probably travel further. You might decide to pay more um, and if you then eventually found the right surgeon for you and you had to go through whatever waiting list they decreed you needed to, uh, to follow, uh, and you met them and they were, you know, sort of just as lacking in bedside manner as that GP was at that point, you would take it on the chin. You wouldn't say, right, forget this. I'm going to go and find a different surgeon because obviously at that point you don't have many options. You know, you've got a problem that needs solving. You're in front of an expert. And the fact that they are a bit sniffy with you is just much less important than it was when you were with a GP. So for me, the read through to agencies is super clear. You know, if you can provide something to the marketplace that solves a problem that um, clients are acutely facing, um, then you're in a much better position to have bargaining power when it comes to the way that they choose to buy from you. And, um, you know, you're never far from a dating analogy either. It's not quite treating mean, keeping keen, which is a horrible phrase at the best of times. But it is a sense of being able to um, exercise some degree of control 
over um, the way that people interact with you as opposed to, um, you know, just being told what to do by the client. And again, you mentioned procurement at the start. <laughs> I found this really interesting. So the sort of agency perception of procurement as these kind of aggressive Rottweilers that will, you know, sort of force you to do things you want to do and force you to sort of take margin out and force you to show, you know, your overhead, overhead recovery rate and all that kind of stuff. It's just their job. And actually, you know, I've met plenty of procurement people since not being an agency person that I'd met before. And of course, they're nice as pie. And of course they are. And actually, they'd rather if agencies put up more of a more of a fight in those situations, because all the things that agencies think they can't do, if you ask procurement people privately, they'd be more than happy to accommodate. So, um, you know, sharing rate cards, for example, is a case in point. Um, if you say to an agency person, well, when the client asks you for a rate card, what if you said you didn't have one? Oh, my God, we can't do that. They just throw us out the process. Well, would they? You sure? And actually, that's not necessarily the case. You know, it might be the case. But again, if you're differentiated and they recognize the value of what you do and your expertise in solving that acute problem they face, then they might well open a conversation up with you about, well, all right, how do you handle kind of the commercial arrangements? And then you're much more in the driving seat and you can tell them how you do it. And if they don't like it, that's okay. There's more clients in the world. You know, they can go away and find the right agency for them. That's no problem. I think we're all sort of conditioned in mainstream agencies to believe that we are, we must be the answer to all of the client's problems if only they would believe it. So we're far more in the persuasion game in agencies than we should be. We should be far more in the kind of, look, this is what we do. This is what we're great at. And um, sounds like that's probably not quite what you need. So we'll step back now. Cheers. Best, best of luck with it, you know? As opposed think, to we, let's find a way to service the client, which is a, a very dangerous sort of ethos that leads you towards some of the more, you know, the symptoms of, of commoditization that we've already touched on. Yeah. And I think, you know, what you're, what you're discussing there would be music to the ears of uh, most kind of forward thinking procurement people. Uh, you know, procurement people are much more focusing on value rather than cost these days. Um, that does require the right data. It requires you to engage in a process in a structured manner so that you can actually assess these things. And it, but it changes also the, the engagement, um, the spirit of the engagement. You know, if a supplier can, can demonstrate or convince, you know, with good empirical evidence, good evidence, good uh, case studies or whatever it might be, that they can deliver the value that they're saying they're going to deliver. Obviously, that's... Um, it's a benefit if you're a specialist, there's more credibility around that, more, more of a laser focus on what you're actually going to be doing. And you're not trying to just kind of like broaden out and solve every problem they might possibly have. Then the procurement person's point of view is going to be definitely going to be skewed towards wanting to capture that value for their organization because that's their job. Their job is to make sure that they're getting the best value for the money that's spent engaging the best suppliers. Um, so, so when it comes to actually defining value, Whose responsibility? Take a, take a, let's take a fictional engagement. Um, in terms of defining the value of that engagement, how much of that should, should sit with the client? How much of that should sit with the, the agency? Well, I, I think it's a collaboration. And I, I think that's, again, sort of the, the answer is in the question. I think if you are an agency that... Um, <laughs> just thinking back to uh, a guy I used to work with many years ago and, and forgive me for all the Australians in the uh, in your audience go on, he's going to do an find, accent go on. Do the accent but he said um, and this was beautifully true he said he said you've got to make the brief don't take the brief 
And I thought, um, that's bang on. And part of that is about having a different kind of conversation earlier with clients. So getting upstream, talking to senior decision makers, starting to uncover, shape, um, and define a need, um, as opposed to constantly sort of looking for business very much at the point of demand, where there is a pitch brief, you know, there is probably some very tightly, you know, tight procedural guidelines around that process to ensure, you know, probity and fairness. So trying to break those constraints at that point is much harder than having the conversation earlier. But, you know, to what degree agencies really work hard to have those upstream conversations is a whole other conversation. So if you are um, in a position where you can have a meaningful conversation about the size and shape of a brief, what value looks like, how to get everybody's, um, you know, incentives pointing in the same direction, then it should absolutely be a collaborative engagement. But I think, you know, when you put it into a competitive context where the agency's on the back foot, they feel like they're one of six. And again, this isn't anti-pitch, but when you're trying to have those kinds of progressive conversations at that point in the buying journey, then um, you couldn't pick a harder time to try and have those conversations with the client, which is, and again, we talked about this before, why agencies don't reach out um, and talk more proactively with procurement and get these conversations going and use that as leverage to really understand the commercial drivers behind the marketing agenda. Um, you know, is beyond me. I say it's beyond me. It, it's, it amazes me that more don't do it, but I understand why they don't because they see that sort of, you ask an agency what its sales strategy is and they generally don't have one. Um, it's more about pitch conversion. And um, obviously that's a, a sort of the sharp end of the sales cycle. That's not the whole sales cycle. So um, I think going back to the surgeon analogy, if your agency is set up to solve a discrete problem for a specific audience, then you have a tightly defined use case that you can then reach out to clients that best fit that set of criteria. And you can um, have proactive conversations with a manageable number of prospects and you can start to have these upstream conversations. Again, this is another one where language gets in the way. As soon as you agencies hear things like specialist and solve a problem and discrete audience, they start thinking, oh, well, that means a single discipline or it means you know a single vertical sector that we work in. It doesn't mean any of that stuff could do nothing wrong with those things but you know specialism could be big you could argue that the four you know big holding companies are specialists in servicing the you know end-to-end -end needs of global advertisers perfectly reasonable you know you could argue about the level of differentiation between the wpps and the omnicoms of this world but in terms of their competitive set i think that's a reasonably well-defined marketplace and yes there's smaller independents sort of snapping at their heels as client demand is changing and the nature of globalization is changing but um, the reality is that specialist doesn't mean small. But if your business is specialized and tailored, then you can design an entire business model that allows you to win more of the kind of work you want to do from the people that are most likely to buy it um, using the kind of sales cycle that speaks to your mutual benefit, um, which of course leads you back to the point you raised, which is about having a peer-to-peer a, a -peer conversation about whether you're the right fit for one another, not trying to persuade the client that you definitely definitely are um and then for having a grown-up conversation about where the value is going to come from yeah it's, it's just that consultative approach and um being good at solving a particular problem just has benefits all around it has benefits for the client 
you know, it's much more definable in terms of what this what this supplier is being brought in to do, what their area of expertise is. And therefore, it should, by the very nature of that, be easier to define the type of value um, that you're going to, to deliver. Um, you know, procurement people want to be able to, to measure what's being delivered. We paid X, we got Y. How does that stack up? What's the return? How, how is that impacting the rest of the business? You know, there's so many cool things that procurement people can do with the data that they have in terms of looking at external influences, insta, internal goings on, feeding information up into the C-suite to say, this is working really well. We think this is driving X and Y, but it's only as good as the data they've got. And that data, to a certain extent, is only as good as the relationship and the depth of the relationship they have with their suppliers. Um, I mean, on that point, I suppose to argue the agency's cause a little bit. Again, I spend most of my time being sort of critical or at least challenging of agency people and, and sort of suggesting they take more responsibility for the situations they're in, which I think is reasonable. I think the other side of the coin is as much as I would um, defend the um, agency community. Uh, sorry, mate, I think my door is just. <laughs> no, no, no worries. Let me one second. <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought we were going to get a third member of the conversation for it. Come on in. Come, come on in. in. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the, it's the uh, you know, the kind of COVID, COVID normality, isn't it? Just invite them in. Exactly. Um, exactly. But so um, you were saying, you were saying that with not wanting to be too harsh on the agencies themselves. Yeah. So context. this was a point about procurement. So assessing value, it, defining value, defining yeah, yeah. what's going to be done. I, I just think it's easier if somebody comes in and they're a specialist, it's easier to define what they're going to do. It's easier for the client. The client has to have a clearer understanding of what they want to be delivered at the, at the outset. And that is part of that is definitely part way towards the solution for, for this value based approach. If they're a specialist, they can fit into that gap more effectively. You can define it more accurately. It's not trying to creep into everything, which is where it becomes very, very vague and I'll, I'll, sorry, I've hijacked your point a bit here, but I'll let you come back onto that in a second. But I think there's some really interesting things to look at as to how those well-defined outcomes flow down into the workforce and, and help that workforce. But anyway, back to your point about um, on the, looking at it from an agency point of view. Yeah, I suppose in def we're talking about procurement and value and, um, and data in particular. The sort of, the, the opportunity is for, you know, smart, progressive procurement people and smart, progressive agency people to be able to align around clearly defined outcomes, set up the right incentives on both sides to get there. And that, that feels like, you know, a perfectly sensible aim. Agency people do whinge about procurement a lot still, and it's depressing and counterproductive. But having said that, clearly, the good agency people, bad agency people, there are good procurement people and less good kind of procurement people. So, you know, historically, the difference between procurement that come from a direct sourcing and indirect sourcing background, those that report into the CFO rather than uh, into, you know, a CPO, um, you know, those are the sort of broad brush kind of distinctions that I think are, that certainly carry some weight in terms of the kind of um, incentives that that procurement person is going to be working towards. And I think there's plenty of examples where, you know, a procurement person is being um, assessed in whatever way or incentivized in any way to, you know, in effect, spend less than last year or to achieve some kind of um, saving uh, against 
a set of needs that may be very different to what happened last year. And then if they are motivated to do that and have no great accountability for the quality of the outcome, then clearly that's a, a massive breakdown in the alignment of incentives um, between the marketing department uh, and the agency and, um, and obviously therefore the, you know, the procurement uh, drivers as well. So I suppose just to recognize that there's more work to be done, I think on all sides here, uh, and we shouldn't leave the marketing um, team sort of uh, out of that as well. I think having a, a better sense of the important role that procurement play to, to guard their interests and to guard the commercial interests, um, you know, shouldn't be uh, kind of glossed over as well. But, um, but yeah, I think that the opportunity for, uh, I suppose, people that are, um, have mastery of what they're doing um, to come together to find a route forward that suits everybody you know, that should be the starting position rather than, um, you know, the kind of the happy occasional confluence of agendas. I think a lot of that comes down to clarity. So in, in this instance, obviously, we're talking about marketing agencies in the broadest sense. So if the marketing client has got real clarity over what it is that they're trying to achieve, whether they reach that clarity in combination with a consultative, smart, strategically minded agency or not, but as long as that agenda is clear, if the potential agency partners they're considering um, have got demonstrable expertise in doing that, um, then that's a great basis of a fit. As opposed to, we're pretty sure we want agencies that can kind of do this stuff and um, agencies that are like, yeah, yeah, we can totally do that. Of course we can. And then get back to the office and think, Christ, we've never done that before. How do we do it? <laughs> and I'm not trying to squeeze the entrepreneurialism and the kind of you know essential optimism out of the business but it's not a business model. And I think that's been a challenge for agencies for a long time. The sense of like the answer is yes. What was the question again? But it was definitely yes. That's, that's certainly a concern. So um, yeah, again, it's a sort of, it, there's such multifaceted challenges that touch on so many of the, um, you know, the, the sort of strategic and structural and, um, you know, sort of behavioral and mindset norms within these different groups of stakeholders trying to unpack them within the context of one answer is really tough <laughs> it is but i think you made a really good point there um when you were talking about um you know marketing departments facilitating the involvement of procurement but also they need to recognize the um the benefits that procurement can bring to them if they can if they can actually get them involved you know procurement people aren't there to say no Procurement people are there to make sure that the organisation is getting the best value for the spend, working with the best suppliers, delivering the best outcomes that actually push the business forward. You know, it's a it's a central, crucial role within the strat overall strategy of an organisation. But if they don't have the information, all they can work to is budgets and some kind of fluffy criteria around the outside of it. But if they could actually, you know, surely marketing departments would actually like it if procurement were more able to get involved and could actually help them drill down into the value because ultimately they're being driven towards objectives as well. So if everyone's able to, to get more visibility on actual outputs, outcomes, value, then that, that will enable that organization to continue working with their best suppliers, maybe even increase the work they're doing with their best suppliers rather than just saying, oh guys, we've got to have a budget cut because things are tough. If you can actually say, well, this agency are delivering massive returns on value. 
and we asked them to do this. They did a really great job of it and it's delivering these results. That's something that procurement can fight the case and say, well, actually, we should be spending more money on that because the objective is to drive, drive returns. And that's certainly something that's going to appeal to the CFO, the CEO or the CPO, however that kind of filters through. I, um, I think that's really interesting. So one of the, um, you know, we sort of position marketing and procurement and uh, agency as a sort of, you know, as three points of, you know, on the triangle, if you like. Um, but actually, when you start looking at the incentives between them, I think there's huge alignment between the marketing department and the, uh, and the agencies. So again, if you follow the agency press, there's a lot of uh, talk, you know, certainly at the moment, but that has been for a long time about, you know, the value of creativity in all its forms and, you know, the opportunity for agencies to regain their, their seat at the top table and to be the trust advisor of the C-suite and all that kind of, um, I suppose, rhetoric, which I suppose implicitly points at a concern uh, that they've kind of lost that over the last 30, 40 years and that management consultancies have kind of come from no nowhere and are able to command a much higher premium and provide much higher level of advice, which I think broadly is undoubtedly true. Um, so how do agencies get the ear of the chief exec is, is a thing. And I think at the same time, marketing has been sort of trying to um, sort of fight its corner for a long while along a similar sort of lines in as much as, you know, they want to be perceived as fluffy. They want to be perceived as, you know, the colouring in department and all of these unhelpful cliches, which you hear. Um, I've you never know. heard that one before, which is why it made me chuckle. But yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's unfair at the very least. But again, you know, if, um, you know, if you look at the, the sort of rise of digital media over the last 20 years, um, you could argue that the sort of marketing agenda has sort of swung back sort of too far the other way that it's now almost super numerate and that, yeah. you know, the investment in brand has perhaps been diminished and um, an appreciation of brand within client organizations is perhaps not what it was. I think there's certainly a risk aversion now with sort of mid-level marketeers where they're so, um, they've sort of been brought up with the accountability or presumed accountability of digital media. You know, you start getting into the efficacy of, you know, programmatic spend and, you know, how much your ads have actually been seen by the right people, but the perception of accountability by being able to spend this and getting that, um, you know, as I say, perhaps it's gone too far the other way, but sort of putting that to one side, the idea that marketing hasn't got the credibility within the boardroom that it should do, uh, and agencies facing the same challenge, there's a big overlap there in their agenda. Uh, and you could argue that procurement effectively is the key to the door for both of them, because if you can get that, um, that alignment between those three groups then you know procurement effectively bring the commerciality that um if we're being unkind the more kind of bigger picture creative aspects of marketing lacks and i think again we can certainly say that generally speaking that level of commerciality is lacking within agencies um you know i spoke to a um a friend of mine recently, a guy called James Barnes Austin, who uh, works for a consultancy firm called Sherpa. And um, he was part of the Kamarama agency when they sold to Accenture. Right, so he okay. would know. But the idea that he, um, he mentioned when we spoke recently was uh, he put it so clearly. He said the reality is that clients are professional buyers and agencies are amateur sellers. And going back to the start and me working in selling computers when I was 21, you know, I learned stuff there that would never get taught in an agency. 
That's why sales is often a dirty word. At best, agencies are marketing organizations. So yeah, there is a lack of commercial nows. It's absolutely endemic in you know the vast majority of agencies. And of course, clients, they do this stuff every day, which is why procurement are sort of seen in this sort of big bad wolf context when actually they're just, they just know how to negotiate and they know how to put pressure and they know to recognize the implicit signs of agencies being on the back foot. You know, when you put a cost proposal in and it takes you two weeks and it's a mess when it arrives, you kind of know the agency's winging it. Whereas if agency B puts a methodology on your table, you know, as a procurement person in a day and there's a clear process to it and next steps identified in terms of how to work together to refine it, you think, yep, these guys have done it before. <laughs> I mean, it's not, agencies are, are pretty sort of um, transparent when it comes to, you know, when they're winging it to a trained eye, it's pretty obvious. And that's why that lack of commerciality holds them back. Anyway, um, uh, back to the original point, you have um, a real opportunity for marketeers and agencies to embrace procurement um, to build a commerciality into the arrangements between them um, where value is clear for all um, and that will improve everybody's day yeah I mean you make some great points I like the the point you made around the marketing agencies needing to align with marketing departments effectively be an extension of those marketing departments um, and I think that's always going to be called into question because it can, it can, on the very kind of vague surface of it, it can look lazy, or oh, it's just more capacity. Why aren't, why, aren't you, why aren't you getting your team working harder? Why aren't your team doing more of this? So I think the more that that shifts towards outcome-based delivery, um, the less um, confusion there is about the value that's being delivered. It's like when you're talking about, you know, everyone having to work from home and stuff like that, you know, with the whole working from home. I mean, you know, I've spoken to large organizations during the pandemic where they were, they were, they were having difficulties with this. And part of it was, how do we know people are doing what we need them to be doing? And, and maybe that's just because normally everyone's just, well, they're in the office from, you know, eight till six or whatever that, that's, that's seen as a proxy for them doing what they're meant to be doing. When you actually drill into it, if someone's got to manage childcare, if they've got to manage, I don't know, a pet, or they're, or, they're, or they're dealing with distractions in the home or, or having to pick people up or whatever it is during the pandemic. They've had to do what they need to do and fit it in themselves. Some organisations that I've spoken to have, have even considered things like, um, you know, screen tracking and stuff like that to say, well, you know, are they at home? Are they just watching Netflix? For, there could be, it could be like, you know, the green, green lights on Teams, but they, they're just watching Netflix. But, but actually, if you just judge people on productivity that's far more effective and it's far more fair. And it kind of takes me back to the point I was making about flow down. If you've got clear objectives, I think people like individually working to clear objectives. And if agencies want to attract people and retain people who, particularly if they've got specialist skills, then if they know that they're going to actually deliver an end product or an end point uh, or, you know, an output, that's, that's something that just works a lot, uh, a lot better for a lot of people in terms of actually just getting satisfaction out of what they're doing. Um, so, so coming back to that extension of marketing department, I would argue that there's certain work that's going to be, there's always going to be very difficult to take away from a TNM basis, but there's other work that absolutely can be far more outcome based. And it would suggest to me that that would be better in some ways all round where it's the right way to do it, it'd be better all round because the marketing department know what they're getting. They know what they're paying. They know what their value they're getting out of it. Procurement can see it. Um, 
and the agency actually know what they've got to do. And if they're organised, they can deliver that effectively and efficiently without just having this complete overstaffing scope creep scenario, which creeps in a lot of the time. Yeah, again, there's so much in that. I think we're back to the nature of expertise. You know, if you are doing, you know, expertise is about doing something consistently and getting good at it. And even those kind of, that kind of language worries agencies because the idea of feeling constrained and only ever doing one thing, you know, that's a nonsense, you know, as if you can't be really, um, you know, broad and innovative in your approach to solving a, a big problem you know, whether it's globalization or whether it's, um, you know, brain surgery, you know, there's, there's no limit to the breadth to which you can apply to solving those kind of problems. So bringing the, the, uh, you know, the sort of depth of knowledge that working consistently on related things brings to you, allows you to get good at doing it, which allows you to get good at, uh, knowing the cost and therefore being able to price it. So, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with TNM, and you're right, probably certain kinds of tasks are sort of better suited to it. Um, I think most of the progressive voices around pricing in agencies are not advocating the death of TNM. They're just advocating no. having a, a richer suite of tools in the pricing toolkit um, at your disposal. Kind of right place, right time, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. But of course, if you don't have people that are trained to understand the differences between them, if you don't have permission as an agency through your differentiation to earn the right to have a different kind of conversation about pricing with the client, you know, your opportunity to change that um, ultimate commercial relationship is much diminished. Um, you know, a commoditized agency with a 23 year old senior account director who's had no training around the difference between outcomes and outputs is going to struggle. Equally, if it's just the FD that does all the pricing um, because she's the one with the knowledge, puts an awful lot of pressure and a single point of failure and a single attitude towards the right or wrong way of doing stuff. So there's loads of kind of organizational um, kind of change that needs to happen commercially within agencies from a mindset perspective for a structure, process, responsibility, roles, training, all that good stuff that needs to sort of stack up behind this. But yeah, there's nothing wrong with TNM. Um, there's nothing wrong with, um, you know, fixed prices for outputs. And in essence, because there's this sort of chuck resource at the problem mentality within agencies, time and materials should work in the agency's favor because the risk should sit with the client. This is how much, um, you know, how much time we're going to spend on the problem. And if it doesn't get fixed in that time, then you're going to need to buy more time from us. And that's how lawyers work. But lawyers are able to monetize every hour they spend because you take it as read even when you can't see them however much time they're spending in those six six minute increments they will be charging you for and you pay the bill and you grumble in the pub and you move on whereas agencies don't have that backbone um you could argue they don't have the professional kind of credibility if you like um to be able to do that either so when you offer tnm what you're actually offering often is here is a fixed price. Yeah, we've, we'll tell you how many hours and what those hourly rates are to go into it. But basically, we're going to deliver what we've said we're going to deliver. And this is how we've come up with the price, which is the worst of both worlds. It's effectively a, it's a, def, a sort of de facto fixed price deliverable. And yet you're showing all of your homework. So I don't know why that information needs to be shared with the client. 
And I think if they're honest, most procurement people would argue that they don't really need to see it either. They just get it because it gives them more leverage in a pricing negotiation. So um, equally, when it comes to explicitly selling outputs, you could argue that's um, you know, just another proxy for benchmarking where, okay, if we can get 20 social media posts off agency A for so much money and for the same money, we could get 30 social media posts off the next uh, agency. It has a commoditizing downward effect on pricing because you're still trying to take the subjectivity and the perceived value out of play by presuming that in the first case, you're presuming that one creative director, at, you know, two grand a day is the same as a creative director at a thousand pounds a day. That's nonsense. Equally, in the second example, we're assuming that those 20 social media posts are equal quality of the 30 social media posts. That's nonsense as well. So you can't take the subjectivity out of this stuff. So ultimately, it boils down to, can we deliver what we said we're going to deliver? So what's the outcome we're trying to achieve? And that could be something as benign as an idea being signed off at board level. That's yeah. an outcome. It could be... Um, something as far reaching as an improvement in the share price or, um, you know, that the agency has no direct control over um, or, you know, improvement in net promoter scores or whatever other outcome. Um, there doesn't have to be a performance related aspect to that, but if you, the client hires you to put 10% on the share price and you think that's a good thing to do and you think you can do it as an agency and you scope it out together, um, you agree a fair price for it. The agency knows its costs and doesn't have to um, share them. Um, it should be a win-win. Now, if the client thinks that's worth a million quid or 10 million quid, that's up for the negotiation. You can work that out. It doesn't need to be a question of how many hours, you know, and, and the perceived value of the people that are put in at those hourly rates. Um, the ultimate fail-safe, it's just like democracy. If you don't like the government, vote them out. You know, it might not be perfect, but it's the best system we have. And the same thing, if you don't get the share price increase, if you think it's the agency's fault, fire them. And if it's fair, they'll think, okay, fair enough. If they think they've been harshly treated because the product's a dog and, you know, they're selling barbecues and it rained all year, um, they'll feel hard done by. But it doesn't change the fact that that's how it's going to end up. It's a bit like um, uh, gig tickets. So there you go. If you love music, you um, you buy a gig ticket and you hope to have a good time. If it's a big name, um, you maybe pay more money for the gig ticket and you really, really hope you have a good time because you spent more money and there's a reputation to behold. And if it's a shit gig, you're disappointed as hell. Whereas if you spend a fraction of that money on um, a gig ticket for someone you barely heard of and then they blow you away, that's amazing but you're still, it's still a leap of faith. You decide to pay money based on your perception of the value you're going to get. And if you're happy, you might do it again. And if you're dissatisfied, you'll do something differently next time. That is ultimately what it boils down to when you're dealing with subjectivity. Yeah. And like you say, if you can, if you can actually, if you can effectively package it up with the, the um, allowance for the subjectivity involved in this type of, you know, often a creative process, then you're still, you're still working to an outcome. You're still saying, we're going to do this and we're going to, we're going to price it like this. And the client is accepting saying, well, that works for us. If you can do that for that price, we're really happy with that. Great. Then it's down to the agency to, to deliver it and to make that work for them commercially. But in that's, that, how, in that's how it works in most, most other scenarios. 
Exactly. You know, yeah, you, absolutely. you toss how much your airline is paying on fuel. You know, it's just, just okay, if it's going to cost me two grand to get across the Atlantic or it's going to cost me 700 quid or 300 quid, I'll pay my money and I'll, I'll take my choice. I think it's, it's in fairness to clients as well, I think there's probably a lot of pushback here from the agency business model where certainly in the network agencies, they really value the predictability of revenue over lumpy profit. Yeah. And I think um, offering a variety of pricing mechanisms, which maybe have the potential to create a more profitable win-win like the one we've just described, um, it makes reporting difficult. It makes, um, you know, the management of their uh, expectations um, and the, the reporting back to their shareholders trickier because that's just not how they've been sort of set up to operate. And I think um, that is a massive cultural and structural impediment to uh, a richer, more commercially informed, flexible conversation with clients. Yeah, and it may mean that we see agencies taking a slightly different shape um, if that becomes more the kind of um, normal way of doing things. Or it may be that that's only certain types of clients want to do things that way or only in certain areas. But I think the bottom line here is that within that process, procurement don't want the supplier to fail. Um, you know, in 99.9% of cases, unless there's some sort of personal you know disconnect where people just really don't get on with each other personality clash um procurement and if they're professional anyway then that, that's that's neither here nor there but they want the supplier to achieve their objectives they want them to do a great job and because then they're in a good position that you know the business is working well marketing are getting what they need it's money that was well spent they did a good job um in in helping procure that service so so yeah people you know people if people can go into it with a mentality that everyone wants this to work and actually everyone benefits from it being a, a, a good outcome, um, then that's going to go a long way towards it. But as you say, it's very complicated, but then so is the current situation. It's very complicated where you have disorganized TNM and cost overruns for the client, lack of profit for the agency, lack of kind of measurability on what's actually happening on a day-to-day -day basis. At what point do you know it's gone astray? Whereas if you work into outcomes and milestones in particular, then you're kind of breaking it down and you can see it in real time. Um, so yes, there's yes, there's mileage to get to the, the panacea, but it's not a perfect situation at the moment. Um, but I think it's a really interesting opportunity that, that I think really the last couple of years has definitely opened this up um, as more of an option. I agree with you. And I, I think, you know, the agencies being more focused, there being a more kind of, holistic commercial conversation within those agencies can only help reach that kind of outcome that we've that we've talked about that kind of more informed more peer-to-peer -peer, more constructive aligned relationship with you know marketing and procurement um it's um i i just don't see any other way of them successfully doing business uh moving forward than starting to adopt those kind of approaches and um as I say, I hope that COVID can be a, an accelerant to a different kind of conversation and, um, you know, a more mutually beneficial one. Uh, to your point, you know, everybody wants the same thing at the end of the day. And I think we can talk about incentives and alignment and procurement being incentives by cost saving versus outcome. And those things do need addressing. But, you know, it's a bit like when you go and watch a stand up comedian. No one wants a comedian to bomb because it's an unpleasant experience for everybody. <laughs> and it's the same thing here. Everybody involved with, you know, this conversation wants the brand and the business to do well. You know, 
clients want agencies to make enough margin to build good businesses to be able to deliver great work. Um, you know, nobody is suggesting agencies want to be profiteering. So getting giving good value for good money, and that seems perfectly aligned with what procurement should be, you know, aiming for. And of course, the agency's kind of criteria apply to the to the marketing client as well. So it just shouldn't be beyond the wit of man or woman to be able to create a, a sort of tripartite relationship where everybody is um, mindful of this. I think you made another really good point as well, which is, you know, it's easy for me to sort of glibly talk about, well, just pay us a million quid and we'll increase the share price or call it 2 million or 10 million or whatever. Um, it's not an all eggs in one basket point. So as you said, sort of staging deliverables and having a journey towards that where, you know, there is a degree of commitment, but there are, um, you know, so the protection from a client side to be able to get out of an agreement. And if it's not working, you start small, you build a relationship, you trust one another and, and away you go. It doesn't have to be a, you know, sign up for three years. Obviously there are certain, you know, projects that warrant necessarily warrant that kind of commitment, whether it's an infrastructure piece or whatever else. But um, I just feel like somebody said this to me the other day, and I think it's absolutely spot on. There's so much, in a kind of commoditized market where there are a lot of agencies with very little difference between them, all struggling to compete at the point of demand where the presumption is that the client knows exactly what they want. Uh, it's so dysfunctional as a marketplace and it only drives towards the bottom, which you know harms the client's agenda as much as it harms um, the agencies um, as well. But I oh, lost my train of thought now, bugger. <laughs> what was it going to just say to, just to come back to another point you might uh, well pick up on that in a second but just to come back to something you were saying about you know the measurement of milestones and kind of protecting value on on both sides it's just better for everyone because when you're delivering a project if it's broken down into milestones stuff's probably going to change along the way and if it does change along the way and that's agreed within that within that process you know, a change request, a variation to the project. Procurement can get on board with that. The client stakeholder gets on board with it. The supplier gets on board with it. And everybody moves on. Because too often, people can just end up in the soup where a project's gone awry. It's not necessarily the supplier's fault. It might be that the client hasn't hasn't executed on something or hasn't delivered or they were late or whatever it might be. Um, but the, it's just a sensible way of doing business. I always think it's kind of like the way people sometimes will engage builders on their own house. You know, sometimes you'll hear stories of people saying, oh, it was just, um, you know, they were just going to come on to take this much time and it took longer and went on for six months and they're still here. They actually will keep my voice down because they're in the bathroom at the moment versus clear, we're going to do this and this will cost this much. Actually, you've just, you're changing that moving the goalposts and you've just asked me to do X and Y extra. So that's going to be this much extra. Um, it's just that clear accountability on both sides. Um, but anyway, if that hasn't completely distracted you from the point that you were trying to remember, <laughs> nothing will. <laughs> we come back to you? No, we will. Uh, it'll, it will uh, pop back into my head as soon as we hang up the call, actually. But um, as is often the way. But uh, um, uh, yeah, but you no, were, it's you gone were, for now. You were, you were talking about this kind of um, just this tri-party relationship and about people having the kind of maturity and the confidence to come into that with the right approach. Um, and I think, you know, we're in a we're in a time where conversations have opened up and clearly for you in the work that you do, you're going to be talking to organisations about these sorts of problems and addressing these sort of problems in their strategy. Um, so I think it's an exciting opportunity. Yeah, I agree with you, uh, as it almost brings us back full circle, 
full service full service god i'm so agency it's outrageous <laughs> um uh full circle always back. be closing <laughs> full circle um back to the start do you know what you say that about always be closing it's a funny one because um i don't know if you've ever seen glenn gary glenn ross it's a david i haven't actually play. but i've I, yeah I, i'm aware of it yeah we're aware of the scene where um you know it's a very pressurized sales meeting where um uh what's the actor he was in 30 rock series of brothers baldwin one of the baldwin brothers forget which one alec he, i think it is alec isn't it he's very aggressively telling this sort of um team of very put upon salespeople that if they don't sell stuff um they're going to get fired and that's what that abc scene is about and um when you're in agency land, I always found this quite curious because the ABC reference for me was cemented in that first job where um, it's like you, you sell or you're out on your ass. Ah, okay, I get it. Whereas um, in agency land, selling is not a thing that we do. You know, we persuade, we coax, we're compelling and all that stuff. And um, ABC is used as a sort of um, a kind of cheeky little pat on the back to people. Oh, ABC, nice work. See what you did there. You know, where you show a little bit of cheek or a little bit of, um, you know, uh, you, you ask a direct question or something like that. And it's sort of the sense of it gets completely lost. And for me, having sat both sides of that divide, you know, a sort of marketing organization versus a sort of hard no sales organization. And it wasn't like I worked in a boiler room, but you know what I mean? Um, the It's quite emblematic of the absence of a sales culture within most agency organizations. And I say most because some are explicitly very much sales organizations. And I think they are much more commercially aware because of it. But um, yeah, it's an interesting little um, uh, reminder, I suppose, of the differences between a genuine sales culture and one that just sort of imagines that it's selling well, because that's what agencies do, right? Not necessarily. Yeah, it's not like procurement aren't used to be used to being sold to. It's not like they're not expecting to be sold to. And it's not like they haven't got all the kind of tactics and countermeasures to deal with that. But if it's, you know, if there's a genuine uh, value gap uh, that can be filled by a, a, a credible solution, then that's what they want, really. Um, but just, just to round things up, I think it's really, really interesting discussion. I really appreciate your time. Um, just in terms of what you're looking at working on moving forward, what do you think are going to be the key areas and the type of organizations you're going to be working with over the next 12 months? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think this is, it, it speaks to the changes we've described in a, kind of the legacies of COVID, if you like. So when people ask about the ideal client fit for co-definery, they sort of say, is it a certain kind of agency, a certain discipline, a certain size? It's really none of those things. So, um, you know, Code Refinery uh, works with global network agencies and startup agencies and everything in between. The thing that binds them together is, um, I suppose, a willingness to be progressive. And I suppose to the, to the sort of plethora of points, overlapping points we've touched on today, and I think I mentioned this at the start, it's the, the sort of latent value in the agency business model. It's there, but it just needs to be recognized and connected so understanding how a change over here in your agency business model can unlock value and revenue over there is where the work comes from. So the people that I will be working more with will be those that recognize that there is value locked up in the business and are willing and have the time to um, sort of look at the important in amongst the urgent and to embrace the fact that 
you know, if you look holistically at the agency, there's a much better sense of differentiation that can be achieved. There's a much healthier, um, you know, culture that can be achieved. Um, and there's greater profit that can be achieved. And none of those things are actually that difficult to do. If you've got the wherewithal to, um, well, not even the wherewithal, it, it's just simply the willingness to look holistically at the business. And I think we're going to see more and more agencies, um, you know, wanting to have those kinds of conversations. Like you said, it's the strings holding everything together kind of behind the scenes, isn't it, really going towards this overarching objective. Um, well, listen, really interesting chat. Really appreciate your time. Um, you know, it, it sounds fantastic what you're going to be working on. and I wish you all the best with it. Um, hopefully we can catch up again soon. Um, found this conversation very, uh, very insightful. It's great to hear some of the anecdotes and, and your view on it from a, a, an industry specific perspective. Um, but yeah, really appreciate it. And um, yeah, thanks very much for your time, Robin. Uh, and Johnny, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you for listening to me uh, prattle on. And um, it's been great to get an insight from your side as well. So thanks very much. I've enjoyed it very much. Cheers, Robin. Cheers.